Welcome to Renford Rewatched. In this episode, I talk to Renford Rejects fan Carl about the episode All in the Mind from Series 1. Carl, tell me, what are your memories, first of all, of this episode? Do you remember anything about it? I have no recollection of watching this episode first time round, if I'm honest. It is quite a forgettable episode um, within the grand scheme of things. It definitely is, yeah. I, I remembered certain scenes or things, but there's a lot of stuff that was reused later on, so that's probably where my confusion lies. So this is an episode that opens with uh, Vinny's black and white cam, which we're used to at this point, and he's talking to each of the individual rejects, and you kind of get this mockumentary style, don't you? Uh, yeah, I quite liked how they kind of followed that through with all of Vinny's little segments. Um, I did wonder about whether or not the showing order of the episodes got shuffled around from filming to broadcast, because this kind of almost struck me as a second episode, let's meet the characters uh, sort of thing, before then going into sort of each one in detail. Whereas this is what, episode five? Yeah at which point you're kind of used to them all and you, know, and you know who they all are. So from that perspective, it was a bit of a, a waste of time. Yes, it did feel like that. Going to kind of shuffle around a few things because there are things in this episode where you have to kind of zero in on. But one thing that struck me, and I think this is unusual for this thing, is normally there's an A plot and a B plot. This one, there's just the A plot. And when it looks like there's going to be a B plot, it doesn't materialise. No, the, um, the the MI5's football team uh, appears for like five seconds. Um, Eddie is in it for a little bit, but he's not sort of, you know, they could have slotted in something between Eddie and Priscilla, but they didn't. Priscilla's not even in this at all. One thing I noticed about Eddie was that they're almost making fun of the fact that he consistently uses Elvis song titles in his dialogue almost as though it's the show saying don't worry this isn't forever we're putting a stop to it we know it's a thing <laughs> and just kind of rounding that out but it feels kind of sad because um I, I don't know just it just doesn't feel developed enough and like you say this probably was like the second or third episode they worked on where they weren't quite sure where they were going with it. So really the main point of the story is that Robin is doing a psychology course. She's talking to Stuart about it. And Stuart at this point, before we go into that, actually, a few deviations. Stuart is still talking like a 1950s football commentator, which is very odd. Yeah, he still has that put, put on um, posh accent that disappears very quickly as the series goes on and he kind of sort of Matthew Leach settles into talking in his own voice rather than uh, putting on that kind of that posh um, that posh accent I know that that was kind of how he was characterized from the beginning but yeah I think Stuart gets to become a much better character as, uh, as time goes on yes I think so so as you were saying before we started recording this uh, the Robin story is quite forward thinking isn't it it's just that the execution isn't always on point at the time it would have been considered very stereotypical um you know 
mental health wasn't something that anyone really spoke about back in the 1990s, especially when it came to um, men's sports in particular. You know, you've got them all kind of sat around going um and, and acting uh, like, what, what was it Eddie said, you know, acting like hippies. Was So, you know, people that kind of talked about their feelings with each other were, were kind of seen as, is very soft and and not normal uh, back in the day. And in this case, you know, we've, we've got a group of men that, that hide their personal issues behind uh, some uh, deep-rooted uh, fantasies. Yes, which they go through one by one. They don't really explore Ronnie's side of it because he's still very one-note, but certainly Jason and Ben and uh, Bruno, Bruno especially... I think, to the audience is a character that you you know he's putting up a pretense, especially as every episode up until this moment, he breaks character for a second. Yes, and he does that again in this one as well, doesn't he, for um, yes. quite a considerable length of time, actually, once he thinks he's off camera and Vinny's not, not filming him anymore. Makes you wonder, actually, what perspective we're looking at this. Is this whole thing just like Vinny's film or is this reality that's kind of the thing that confused me at the beginning was that we start off with this Vinny mockumentary thing black and white color black and white color and then and then it kind of just cuts to normally we'd have like an establishing shot of the cafe coming down and then into that scene with that da 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 that music but in this instance you just cut straight to Jason and you think Ah, we're in reality now. <laughs> this is odd. Yeah, Vin- Vinny's very much the uh, the audience representative character, isn't he? And he normally is the one who sort of sets up uh, or explains to the audience what is happening that week and and what the plot is is going to be or the expectation of what it's going to be for the rest of that episode. Whereas this time round, we don't get that at all. He's he's looking at each of his friends individually, and like I say, and then it just kind of it jumps very much over to Robin. It it's not oh. You know, Robin's trying something. Will it work? Will it not work? As, as part of his commentary, it just kind of happens almost as a separate, completely separate, almost like they had two separate ideas for an episode and didn't quite know how to put it together properly. As though they had like a storytelling mechanism and they kind of gave up halfway through. We've already established in this podcast that Robin at times is like a mentor to the other characters uh, certainly in the previous one you know she's a mentor to the other characters and so here they they almost trust her while also being rather scathing or unsure about what her methods are i mean there i suppose there is a tendency for female characters to appear a lot more emotionally mature in um modern tv shows most definitely i haven't watched any other dramas from the 1990s for a very long time so i couldn't tell you if if that was the case on Grange Hill or Biker Grove or Press Gang or something like that. But in this case, you know, we see immediately that from the first episode, not only is Robin a lot more skilled at football than the others, she's not living in that fantasy world like, like someone like Jason, pretending to be or thinking that she she's better than she is. I mean, that obviously pays off for her later on in the series when she goes to play for, um, is it the Chelsea women's team, I think? Yes. Chelsea girls so in that respect you know that we, we kind of see that that growth from that character as she goes on yeah certainly in this episode we immediately see that Robin is or comes across as a lot more mature um, than the boys do yeah until the end where they kind of do a 180 on it 
I think that may have been a, a way of explaining why the boys are the way they are. You know, it's been mentioned in in podcasts and interviews that the characters all had a kind of a, a pre-written backstory that the audience had no clue about that justifies the characters and the way they are. And it may be that that was their way of sort of saying that actually these boys all live in this fantasy world because it's their way of coping with, I don't know, for example, maybe Ben's parents are going through some horrible divorce that we don't know about and his him sort of resort, resorting to poetry is just his way of of coping with that you know bruno is kind of that characteristic of the um popularity of italian football in the in the 1990s italia 90 uh, being uh, on like most mornings on channel four at the weekends i think we all knew a kid like jason who was had an overinflated ego when it came to playing football and thought he was a lot better than he actually was so, I mean, if the saying the show is written by an American writer, an American creators, they get a lot of the stereotypes and cliches of sort of playground characters from schools of that time, very, very close to reality. And it may be that, um, yeah, they may have those fantasies as well as a coping mechanism. And so Robin then sort of turns to a fantasy to cope with the fact that she got a D for her report and her project didn't actually work at all in the end. <laughs> And yet still still had faith in it because she picked up on the energy of the others, even though they've done a 180 as well in their attitude. And I think, mm. like you said earlier, and I've mentioned that the execution wouldn't be done the same these days, but the message is still there and still quite a contemporary message that in the heat of the moment, it's okay just to, you know, just to take a deep breath and and think. I mean, we we'd spoke a little bit before before recording um, about it, and I think there's a lot of parallels with this episode with uh, the way Ted Lasso ran. Both shows are about football, but kind of use it as more of a plot device than being just about football. The, there's not that many episodes of Renfrew Rejects that are exclusively about a a football tournament or or just a match. Normally there's something else going off and it's the same with Ted Lasso. That was a show where the purpose of the coach wasn't to get the team to be a, a, a winning team. The purpose of the coach was to um, help those players become the best versions of themselves. And the show has broken down a lot of barriers with regards to uh, discussions about mental health and um, other sensitive issues like sexuality within um, a sport that stereotypically and historically did not go anywhere near those sorts of issues. And it's in, it was interesting, actually, to see Stuart sort of brush off Robin's idea as um, not cricket, which is almost kind of if she'd have suggested it to Basil Stoker, you know, you've gone off on one and said, you know, you can't, you know, psychology, football is not about psychology. It's it's about, you know, um, running down a field or, or, or some sort of stokerism that he'd come out with. And it was interesting to see um, Stuart be a sceptic rather than um, the usual villains. That somehow appeared sharper coming from Stuart because he was using that posh accent and a lot of phrases. I mean, the amount of times he called them chaps <laughs> was, was um, you know, quite... Uh, for somebody used to the later episodes, would go back there and, and feel like, you know, this is a little bit strange, perhaps, to see this early characterization. I, I think that other strange elements, because I was watching this thinking, I do not remember this at all. This is a very odd episode. And one of them 
one of the reasons why this is the case is because of the strange references <laughs> that are in this thing. Um, did you pick up, do you remember the name of the goalkeeper that Ben um, apparently idolises? I'm not sure if I Google, I didn't Google it. So I didn't know whether he was, uh, he was talking about someone that was real or not. My assumption was that was a real player. Um, but yeah, I didn't look it up. So uh, his name was Lev Yashin. And he was a Russian goalkeeper. Um, got the stats in front of me for you football fans out there. He played um, for Dynamo Moscow, um, Moscow between 1950 and 1970, making 326 appearances. And the stats I don't have in front of me, I think he saved somewhere in the region of 200 and... Well, yeah, something like, no, here we go. Here we go. I've got it. 150 penalty kicks in wow. his career. And is, um, is the only goalkeeper to have received the Ballon d'Or as well. So, wow. yeah, this is, it's like you said earlier about the American writers. The insertion of that reference kind of feels like then it would have been relatively obscure. Now you could probably just Google it you know, who was the best goalkeeper of all time, and that's who would come up, then they must have had somebody pretty knowledgeable on staff. Yeah, because you wouldn't have been able to Google that back in the 90s at all, would you? No, definitely not. But it kind of fits into Ben's sensibilities somehow, that it's that obscure. Yes, exactly. He'd be the sort of person to come up with that sort of um, that sort of obscure reference. But I, I think it's it sort of shows how, despite all the sort of caricatures and things like that, at, at heart, all of those players in the rejects are still into football, aren't they? You know, they're not uh, a bunch of people that don't like football that ended up just being together. They all support a football team. They're all into football. They may have overinflated ideas of how well they can play it, but they're all still very much um, interested in the game. And even though Ben is sort of comes off as an intellectual uh, nerd, for want of a better word. Um, I think that's more derogatory back then than it is now. But he was still into football and wanted to be a goalkeeper to the point that, you know, he, he knew about this, um, I suppose, relatively obscure at the time, um, Russian goalkeeper. And when you look up the stats and stuff, it makes perfect sense. The other reference that struck me was the Gene Hackman film. <laughs> Jason thought it was a woman as well that starred in the movie. Because <laughs> he, ref he refers to Gene Hackman as a she. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if he got the actors, uh, the actors mixed up. I couldn't recall what film he was, um, he was talking about. I'm going to assume, because I did a search on this, I'm going to assume that he's talking about, uh, an, uh, I mean, it's a, there's a couple. There's a couple out there. I've typed in. Gene Hackman president movie and a couple of them have come up one from 1989 called the package and then one where he played a president Gene Hackman uh, which came out a year before the rejects called absolute power so I'm going to assume it's the latter because that's a very current reference for that you know because in previous episodes they've made references to Boyzone and stuff so it's not always really obscure stuff no no it's it's not like a program at the time say um, i used to watch a lot of neighbors when i was a kid um and there was very very few if ever references to the outside world on a soap opera like neighbors whereas 
Brentford Rejects is always aware of um, cultural touchstones of the of that era and, and previous as well. Props to whoever came up with the soundtrack for this episode as well. It was quite nice to see the uh, fun-loving criminals and Chumbawamba um, popping up. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was just looking down my notes here and thinking that, you know, um, every time they use that piece of music for Ronnie, which I think is called uh, Where Love's Love Lives, and it's like a club mix by Alison Limerick, and it's just, uh, it's it's sublime because it's so like of the period, of the moment, and fits kind of Ronnie talking about style. Like you say, um, Chumba Wamba is in there. The Razor's theme, uh, Club to Death, I think, is in there for a few seconds. And I, that must be one of the few times that that theme is heard and yet there are no Razor's on screen. I was expecting Terry to pop up at some point and I was like, where's Terry? They played his theme music. Maybe by that point, they hadn't quite figured that out yet. I mean, did they do that in episode two, Don Bruno? Um, I feel like... Yes, yeah, frequently. When uh, when Terry and um, James Corden were around, it was always playing in the background. So immediately it became their, their theme tune. They could easily have found the sort of five-second spot for... Terry Stokers has just kind of pop up and go, what are you lot doing? And then made fun of them and walked off. And that, that would have been perfectly in character and perfectly within the um, uh, reality of the show. Yes, I feel like, and we, we can do a bit of fan rewriting, if you will, but I feel like if they had rewritten this episode, the Stokers definitely would have been in it. And actually, Stuart would have been a bit more for it normally. Yes, definitely, definitely. He rather than him being the foil, yeah, Stoker and um, Basil and Terry would have been the uh, the ones laughing at them for for attempting some sort of um, mental health help um, within a uh, man's game, as Basil Stoker would have said. Yeah, but not necessarily established quite so much at that point. The thing that kind of strikes me though is that this feels like to me anyway, a, a filler episode. Do you think this was almost, this episode is the case for the seasons or series, as we called them, should have been shorter? I don't think they should have been shorter. I think we got, what, 12 episodes per season, which was a lot for a, for any TV show um, back then and would still be a lot now. Most, uh, most sort of comedies that come out uh, with half an hour episodes tend to be limited to six if they're made in the UK. So 12 12 worked quite well, um, and it meant that when it was broadcast on terrestrial television, it was on twice a week throughout the summer holidays. Yeah. Which worked quite nicely for me. (laughs) (laughs) In retrospective, it would have been quite good if they'd have had Robin analyse Terry and pull him apart and explain why, why is he the way he is, and then maybe... Terry then ends up as a more relaxed person until Basil comes along and sort of sets him uh, sets him right. That would have been quite an interesting um, B plot to the to the show. I think so because this it felt very fillery. Lots of scenes of people doing thing, you know, doing things that are really unrelated. More black and white shots of of um, Bruno on his bike, you know, things like that. It's like you could have filled this with something else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, some of some of the shots were great. It was still nice to see those those really really long takes they used to do in Graceland's, which um, I certainly didn't didn't realise at the time. But you know, th- that was something that wasn't done on most shows at all. It would normally be, you know, you'd film someone, right, do it again, do it again, then move to the next cut. 
Whereas these guys have got to rehearse this this entire take. It's almost like um, being in the theatre rather than watching it on television. One mistake, and they've got to set the entire thing up again, and then and then go back to the uh, go back to the beginning. So um, for those young actors, many of them who hadn't been in anything before and haven't been in anything since, to to pull that off was uh, yeah, it speaks a lot of their talent. It does because that must have been really difficult to maintain that especially at the beginning i mean they must have kept having to do like retake after retake i mean especially if somebody sneezes or coughs or anything like that but uh props to them you never really see any errors or mistakes no not at all um i mean i, I don't know who they ever got to play all the characters in the backgrounds I, I will assume it the guys who are sort of the mi5 team at the end were just the um the razor um extras with sunglasses on who they just kind of got back in and, and, and reused them uh the a-team used to do that a lot back in the 1980s you, you'd see the same actors pop up as like minor villains every every two to three episodes and i imagine to bring the costs down that's, that's probably what they did here or roped in some kids from the local park or something to just kind of sit around and, and have a chat you can't imagine that they would have thought too much about the teams other than their names and maybe what they look like, you know, addressed like. But, you know, nobody's sitting around thinking, wonder what this league actually looks like. Who are the teams in this league? <laughs> it reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer forms his own bowling league and then they go up against all the stereotypical um, bowling teams about the foreigners and the Christians and, and things like that. Um, so it was interesting for sort of Robin and to comment on the fantasy of, of each of those players and the rejects, but then you've got an entire team of players who dress like um, 1950s spies. What's their story? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe they'll get to that at some point. There's probably some fan fiction somewhere of all the uh, all the football teams and, and whatnot. Do you believe that this is perhaps the weakest episode of this first series my knowledge of i haven't sat down and watched them all um for a few years now so um i couldn't really comment on that but probably would be my answer as as you said no, nothing really happens throughout the throughout the entire thing apart from them um, coming to terms with the fact that they, they lost yeah, it just feels like somebody's like second draft idea of a story, and they're like, "Well, we'll just we'll just use it." Um, someone noted uh, on one of the YouTube uh, videos that they actually won the game in the previous episode. So to come to the next episode and say we've lost our last four matches, it does kind of play with the. Uh, flexibility of of the reality like we're not are we seeing things in chronological order i mean i it says i'm sure stuart says at the beginning that if we lose our next match we're relegated but then later on it's just oh we've just lost our game they don't make any mention about them having been relegated from whatever league they happen to be in it's always oh it's the last match of the season against the razors and if they lose that then they get relegated yeah, and yet they always end up playing the Razors in the next year anyway. <laughs> Maybe something happens in the interim where they get promoted again. You mean one of the uh, you know Sunday League football teams goes into administration? I mean, <laughs> 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 it's very odd. 
maybe it resets every term. You know, we, we see what 12 weeks that that's kind of like almost two half terms of a school year, isn't it? Maybe they, uh, maybe for the other two half term, other two terms, you know, they, they end up getting promoted again. Then by the next season, they're, they're back in that particular division. <laughs> maybe. I, I don't think they were thinking too much about continuity in this yeah. stuff. They weren't expecting a couple of people, you know, 25 years later to look at it and go, well, what's with this continuity? I mean, I always, I always think to myself, what must the parents of all these children think? I mean, as, I suppose a character like Ben or Jason would be fairly straightforward, but does Bruno speak in his Italian accent at the dinner table when he's having tea with his parents in the evening? That's an interesting thing. I, I, I think the, yeah, the boring Barry Grade episode almost gives you an idea uh, because he does speak in the Italian accent at home in that episode. But yeah. whether he keeps it up the entire day, um, maybe it's just when he wakes up in the morning, who knows? But um, based on what that What do teachers think at school? <laughs> I think they'd just go... I think you'd just go with it, wouldn't you? Mm. I think so, anyway. Um, yeah, that is uh, all in the mind. Uh, please do let me know what you think of this episode by tweeting me at re-renford on twitter um is it your favorite episode of the series or uh, are you like us and think maybe it was a bit of filler thanks carl for joining me no problem <laughs>